Shalom and thank you for clicking to listen to one of our audio messages. At Tikvat David, we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. We hope that this message will encourage, inform, and inspire you to follow Yeshua and to walk in the pathways of Torah. Enjoy. One of my favorite children's books of all time is Stone Fox by John Reynolds Gardner. And I actually read Stone Fox to my kids uh, once a year, even as they are adults and teenagers. And, you know, during every reading of Stone Fox, I literally sob. Uh, Typically, I have to pause three or four times during the story to regain my composure. And I'm not sure all the reasons why this book touches me so deeply, but my sense is that I just feel a strong connection to the main character in the story, uh, whose name is Little Willie. Little Willie uh, was just a kid, actually, and he was an, an underdog in the story with very little to work with. But he was absolutely determined to defeat the legendary Stone Fox in the annual town dog sled race. And nobody could tell Little Willie that he was not going to win. In his mind, his dog, Searchlight, would rise to the occasion and make them victorious. Well, I think on some level, um, I guess I feel a connection to Little Willie as I've always just at least thought of myself as if I had to work harder than anyone in the room to enjoy success. And I really wasn't gifted with smarts or or significant athletic ability, but I have experienced success as both a student and as an athlete because I I really had to work hard at it, and I chose to do that. And I was just determined um, that I just wasn't going to be outworked by anyone ever. And so my impression of Paul is that he also was a lot like Little Willie. Uh, Paul gives some hints that he had some personal limitations, and he certainly had a lot, a lot of opposition. But his passion and his determination uh, made up for those challenges and deficiencies, and Paul was really relentless in his mission. Now, contrary to popular perceptions of Paul, I maintain that the heart of Paul's mission included what I would say is, I'm going to use a controversial terms, it included Judaizing Gentiles and bringing them into the realm of Judaism. Now, by Judaizing, I am referring to the process of taking on a Jewish way of life or living Jewishly or Jewish, but this mission included a fundamental caveat. Though Paul's Gentiles Judaize, Uh, their identity as Gentiles had to be protected because God is not only the God of the Jews, but God is the God of the Gentiles also. Now, of course, this raises all kinds of questions. How can someone live Jewishly or Judaize and yet also retain their identity as diverse members of the nations? Well, at this juncture, I would say clarity is critical. When I speak of Paul being a Judaizer, or Gentiles who are Judaizing. I am not speaking of Gentiles becoming Jews or even acting like Jews. This is not what Paul encouraged. But the question is, what was really happening in Paul's day? And what was his vision for the nations? Well, look, the fact is Paul was calling Gentiles to leave paganism and their ancestral gods and give singular devotion to the God of Israel, the Jewish God. He was calling Gentiles to give allegiance and devotion to the Jewish Messiah and King. And Paul was instructing Gentiles to begin to order their ethics and daily lives 
around the principles of the Torah given to the Jewish people. Paula Fredrickson, uh, who is an excellent uh, Pauline scholar, she says the following, Paul's pagans were to worship strictly and only the Jewish God. They were to conform their new religious behavior precisely to the mandates of Jewish worship, withholding public acts of deference to powerful local deities. So by radically exclusively affiliating to Israel's God, Paul's Gentiles were to assume that public behavior, universally identified by pagans and Jews alike, as uniquely Jewish. That is to say, Paul's Gentiles, by the normal and contemporary definition of the term, Judaized. So that's the end of the quote from Paula Fredrickson. So according to Dr. Fredrickson, Paul Judaized Gentiles. Paul's Judaizing message essentially brought Jews and pagans together within Judaism. So conceptualizing Gentiles coming into the realm of Judaism, again, it creates lots of questions such as, you know, can non-Jews become part of Judaism as non-Jews? Is Judaism even a religion? So we need to spend some time with these questions. So first, let's, let's talk about that question. Is Judaism a religion? Well, some argue that Judaism is not a religion, but rather a cultural, social, and covenantal way of life for the Jewish people. So in this line of thinking, Judaism is exclusively for Jews with few exceptions. In other words, Judaism is not a normal path for Gentiles. Non-Jews who want to practice Judaism, if they want to do that, they need to go through proselyte conversion to become legally Jewish. A colleague of mine within Messianic Judaism says, quote, Judaism is a civilization. The idea there is that Judaism is the structural reality of the Jewish people. So in this way of thinking, Judaism is for Jews, and it's not appropriate to speak of non-Jews joining Judaism. Well, along with my colleagues at First Fruit Design, I actually believe, though, that Judaism is a religion. Judaism is indeed the way of life ordained by God for Jews. However, the practice of Judaism is not limited to Jews. Boaz Michael puts it this way. He says, quote, Judaism has always contained a universal component. The Torah starts with the creation of man in God's image, and it argues for a universal morality based on that supposition. The Torah issues certain laws that are binding on all people, not just Jews. The Torah presents the nation of Israel as a royal priesthood among the nations. So it's difficult to argue that the priestly nation has one religion and the other nations have their own religions. Surely a priest and his parishioners belong to the same religion. Different rules and privileges may apply to the priest, but it's still the same religion. The Bible gives the Jewish people the responsibility of being a light to the nations, a task that would be difficult to fulfill under the assumption that our religion is not for the nations. So, Boaz Michael's statement about the universal aspect of Judaism is critical. Judaism does not envision a day. It does not envision a day when the whole world will be comprised of Jews. But it does envision a day when the whole world will practice Judaism as appropriately differentiated for Jews and Gentiles. The universal reach of Judaism is expressed repeatedly in the Siddur, which is the standard book of liturgical Jewish prayer, and we see in the Elenu, the Elenu prayer, which is recited daily, it captures the global reach of Judaism. In the Elenu, we say, therefore, we put our hope in you, Hashem, our God, that we may soon see your mighty splendor to remove detestable idolatry from the earth and false gods will be utterly cut off to perfect the universe through the Almighty's sovereignty. And then all humanity will call upon your name. 
So the end times vision of Judaism expressed in the Elenu and in other Jewish prayers, it does not include a variety of gods and religions in the world. It also does not include a separate parallel or uh, with all due respect to uh, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Mark Kinzer, uh, I don't think Judaism, Jewish prayer, or the scriptures present a bilateral religious structure for the nations. It certainly does include uh, the end times vision of the prophets includes distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but not bilateral religious structures. So the end time vision of the prophets includes exclusive worship of the God of Israel and allegiance to Israel's messianic king for the Jewish people and for the Gentiles. And Paul's claim was that the messianic era that the Jewish people hoped for had arrived. Thus, there were tremendous implications for Paul's Gentiles and their place within Judaism. So I think we can think of Paul as advancing a Judaism for Gentiles or a world Judaism. Paul had no vision for Gentile allegiance to Jesus involving a departure from the realm of Judaism and into a distinct religious structure, which eventually became Christianity. Now that is what happened. But the big question is, was that the apostolic or Pauline vision? And I would say no. So let's look at some key components of Paul's revolutionary vision regarding the inclusion of Gentiles within Judaism because of and through Yeshua. First, I would say in grasping Paul's vision for the nations, we, we need to spend a little bit of time considering the problem that Paul and the apostles had to solve when it came to, when it came to the Gentiles. Um, you know, big question was how could the utopian vision of the prophets be realized when the nation of the world were saturated with idolatry and repeatedly hostile to the Jewish nation. So in his book, Paul and the Gentile Problem, Matthew Thiessen argues that from a Jewish standpoint, there was a Gentile problem that the apostles had to resolve because they were convinced that the Messianic age had dawned. So the problem was, how could pagan Gentiles be incorporated into the family of Abraham as equals and genealogical descendants of Abraham since they were generally categorized as sinners. Even Paul affirmed the taxonomy of the day in Galatians, the Jewish taxonomy of the day in Galatians 2.15 by just in passing, he speaks of the ethne, the, the Gentiles or the nations as Gentile sinners. In Paul's day, look, to be a Gentile was to be a pagan, to be a pagan was to be a Gentile. As Paula Fredrickson says, our modern vocabulary tends to obscure this reality. She says, quote, our vocabulary, which draws on biblical sources, fights against our seeing this clearly. Modern English uses two different words, Gentiles and pagans, whereas the biblical Greek, on which both words rest, has only one, and that is ta ethne, the nations, or Hebrew, it's goyim. So Paula Fredrickson notes that Gentile was not a neutral category in Paul's day. From a Jewish perspective, categorically speaking, a Gentile was someone who was outside of Judaism, outside of God's covenants, and far from the God of Israel. William S. Campbell says, ta-ethne is the Jewish term for non-Jewish nations viewed from a Jewish perspective. It can refer to these nations viewed as without God and without hope, as we see in Ephesians 2. And so it's simply not a neutral term, but implies a deficiency as pursue, perceived by Jews. 
End of quote from William Campbell. So from a Jewish point of view, something fundamental would have to change about Gentiles and their nature if they were going to join Israel, the family of Israel, the family of Abraham, to be, you know, to be able to call the God of Israel father and to call the Jewish people brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. Something had to change because you can't merge, you know, pagans and those who by nature are sinners with that reality. Now, as with most things, there were different viewpoints uh, among Jews as to how this problem would be resolved. And it would be a severe overstatement to think that, you know, every Jew had an opinion on this matter. Most Jews probably didn't. But there were definitely opinions on how to, in the end of days, how would God deal with the Gentiles, with the nations? Uh, so there were different ways of, of conceptualizing this that comes through in the Jewish literature that uh, that has survived, um, you know, the, the 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 apostolic age and a little bit before and a little bit after. Uh, a minority Jewish viewpoint would, was that Gentiles would not be part of Abraham's family and will have no place in the world to come. That basically they're just annihilated. Okay, that's one answer. I'd say that's more of a minority viewpoint, and I don't really know any Jews that hold that view today, but uh, it is in the sources. Another answer is that for Gentiles to become part of Abraham's family and Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, they need to convert. They need to go through proselyte conversion and become naturalized into the nation of Israel as Jews. And that idea seems to be what many of Paul's opponents held to, according to his letters in the book of Acts. We see even that kind of idea comes through in Acts 15 and Acts 15.1. Um, you know, it's probably a fairly common Jewish viewpoint uh, and certainly a prevalent concern that Paul was seeking to resolve. It says there, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So from our modern vantage point, it is not hard to balk and to, 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 to push back at the thinking of these men from Judea. It was like, well, you know, how, how could they think such a thing? How could they require that these Gentiles be circumcised uh, in order to be saved? But again, going back to that mindset at that time as best as we can, reconstructing that, um, look, as, as Gentiles were first beginning to flock to the Jesus movement, uh, the solution offered by the men from Judea to the Gentile problem really was reasonable and natural. The thinking behind this viewpoint was likely of, along the line of, look, if Gentiles are leaving paganism and entering the realm of Judaism, okay, good. Then they, they need to go through proselyte conversion and become Jews, as represented chiefly via circumcision, obviously, for males. So if proselyte conversion... Uh, as the men from Judea and referenced in Acts 15.1, uh, if that became normative for Gentile followers of Jesus, uh, Paul's concern was that it would not represent that a new era had dawned. Yes, the status quo path for Gentiles who want to enter Judaism was proselyte conversion. But Paul passionately argued that this option was no longer appropriate. The death and resurrection of Yeshua meant that the Messianic age had broken in and that that death and resurrection and Gentiles' association with it did something massive for those who so made that association. A defining characteristic of the new prophetic age includes the nations as nations worshiping the God of Israel. 
So if Paul's Gentiles were to convert and become Jews, then this messianic reality would be undermined and the transformative work of Yeshua would be negated. So Paul had a different and very controversial solution to the Gentile problem that created a massive stir in both Jewish and Gentile communities throughout the Greco-Roman world. So what was that solution? His solution was centered around the fact that in Christ, those Gentiles who have given allegiance to Yeshua, who've been immersed into Yeshua, okay, they are no longer Gentile sinners, but they are new creations. They were dead and they've been given new life. And they have thus been made fit to be adopted into the family of Abraham. Uh, I think that reality was at the heart of Paul's gospel. And it's articulated with precision and power uh, in his letter to the Ephesians. I want to just read Ephesians 3 verses 4 through 9 because it's just so mm, so like exquisite and sharp and clear and powerful. So Paul says this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the mystery hidden for ages in God. Okay, that's Ephesians 3, 4 through 9. That is something else. I mean, that statement right there is, yeah, I really like Ephesians. I mean, Paul, you know, says a lot of similar statements, uh, comparable, parallel, whatever statements, but that's unprecedented um, language, realities that um, we just don't have other Jewish literature that takes things anywhere, anywhere near that far. Um, and that's, you know, Paul is just saying the implications of the gospel for the Gentiles is just earth shattering. Uh, note that Paul refers to the gospel as a mystery. Uh, and the mystery, um, I don't think, it, it wasn't a mystery. It wouldn't have been a mystery for, at least from a Jewish perspective, uh, that God would redeem Gentiles at the end of the age. Again, not all Jews necessarily believe that, but it certainly would not have been categorized or received as a mystery. Um, that was something that many Jews expected based on various prophetic texts. The mystery that I think Paul is speaking of was the Gentiles would be, as he says, fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise. Now that uh, was accomplished because these Gentiles are in Christ. So uh, Christian uh, New Testament scholar Lionel Windsor, he, he puts it this way. He says, commenting on this 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 text and this this concept he says what is the new element of the revelation when it comes to the gentiles it cannot simply be referring to the fact that gentiles are now blessed through israel nor the gentiles are now included in temple worship those things were already anticipated in the scriptures and so cannot be described as a mystery furthermore paul can't be simply claiming that gentile inclusion is now understood or known to a greater extent than it was before the advent of christ the language of Revelation and hiddenness implies that something genuinely new has been revealed, something that was not known before. The mystery that has been revealed involves the equality of status between Jews and Gentiles in Christ. This full equality of status was not clear in the prophetic scriptures and other Jewish writings, 
which often portrayed the nations as politically subservient to Israel at the eschaton, eschaton being, you know, the end times. So according to Lionel Windsor, Paul's mystery reveals that in Christ, Gentiles now have full equality of status. And Paul's gospel provided a radical solution to the Gentile problem and welcomed them into the family of Abraham. But again, how does, let's, I want to dig a little deeper. How does that work? How, how can the status and nature of a Gentile sinner be transformed in such a way that they're now considered equals and even brothers alongside the Jewish people? So a big term that Paul uses in his letters powerfully is the term adoption. Gentiles have been adopted into the family of Abraham, the family of God. Remember, in ancient times, people thought in terms of local gods, geographical gods, gods over families, uh, and 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 so God, you know, that that was a that was a big concept in the in the ancient world. So for Paul, the concept of adoption, again, it was central to his framework in explaining how Gentiles can join God's family. Uh, but that was that concept of adoption was not unique to Judaism. Adoption frameworks and processes were present in the Roman culture of Paul's audience. So Paul really had something to work with in communicating this concept of adoption to his Gentile audience. So Paula Fredrickson notes this. She says, quote, Paul's ideas on Gentile adoption in and into Christ reveal his thought at one and the same time at its most Roman at its most traditionally Jewish, and at its most ancient. Roman legal culture had long availed itself of this form of fictive kinship, sons not begotten but made, as a way to settle and to stabilize the next generation of family, both for issues of property, inheritance, and for issues of ancestry and continuation of patrilineal cult. The new son was therefore responsible to and for his new paternal ancestors, and to and for his new father and family. So to sort that out, according to Paula Fredrickson, when Paul used adoption language in his letters, his Greco-Roman recipients likely had an existing framework for the dynamics he was describing. So this would increase their ability to internalize their new status as fully adopted sons and daughters within the family of God. And Paul uses such language in Romans 8, 15 through 17, when he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul's letters consistently seek to persuade his Gentile audience to understand themselves as brothers alongside the Jewish people because in Christ they could now call the Jewish God Abba, Father. Now, according to Matthew Thiessen, such a concept was unparalleled in Jewish sources. However, Thiessen also notes that Paul was presenting a concept that his audience would have a framework for. So he's he's kind of relating to what Paula Fredrickson is saying, but he takes it in a little bit different direction. Thiessen writes that Paul's explanation of how Gentiles are adopted into Abraham's family actually coincide, coincides with a Stoic concept called crassus, which describes this um, a mixture of substances that maintain their distinctiveness. So, so I know this is getting kind of deep, but I think this is important stuff to kind of, you know, how is Paul seeking to articulate and what assumptions 
was he trying to work with in in communicating and defining the identity, defining and communicating the identity of these Gentiles in Christ uh, for Jews that were questioning that, and I would say equally important, maybe more important, was for the Gentiles who were trying to figure out their standing in Christ, especially in relation to voices that were competing with Paul's that were saying, hey, you, you, fine, you want to do the Jewish thing? You want to believe in our God? You want to believe in our Messiah? You want to order your life according to our principles? No problem, but you need to convert. So Paul is really trying to help them to see how their identity in Christ, their standing with God in him is firm and solid and sufficient. Okay, so back to Crassus. Matthew Thiessen puts it this way. He says, quote, Since Crassus permits the perfect mixture of two substances while allowing these substances to retain their own distinctive aspects, Paul's Gentiles in Christ both remain Gentiles and yet they are distinguished from Gentiles who are not in Christ. That is to say, Gentile believers are both fully flesh and blood Gentile bodies and fully infused with the spirit of Christ since Christ is the seed of of Abraham, the infusion of his spirit in a Gentile, Gentiles forges a spiritual connection between Abraham and Gentiles who are in Christ. So reception of Christ's spirit genealogically relates Gentiles to Abraham. Receiving the spirit of Christ, the son of God, and the promised seed of Abraham solves the Gentile problem of being unrelated to Abraham. Okay, I know that was a lot, and I'm, I may be even pushing things with my quotes being a little bit long and uh, you know, on, the, on the deep side, but this is really important stuff is trying to figure out what was happening in Paul's letters. And I think uh, Thiessen is, is really on to something here. His statement underscores the power and role of God's indwelling spirit in Paul's vision for unity in the kingdom of God. It's the spirit of God inside both Jews and Gentiles that fosters family unity in the kingdom of God. And that spirit inside of Gentiles, the spirit of Christ, it can, and because Christ is connected to Abraham, now Gentiles are connected to Abraham and part of the family of God. So Paula Fredrickson says, in Paul's use, reuse of this idea of adoption, it is immersion and conferral of the spirit that binds the Christ-following Gentile into a new family. No longer are they Gentile sinners. They're now in Christ with the indwelling spirit of God, which connects them. They are filled with Christ, thus connected, substantially connected, pneumatically connected, spiritually connected to Abraham and a new family. So this new shalom-saturated family reflected the hope of the prophets who envisioned a day when there would be peace between Israel and the nations. According to Paul, Yeshua's death and resurrection inaugurated this era and it was now time to live according to the Spirit. And so for Paul's Gentiles, uh, this meant their lives would no longer be ordered around pagan gods and pagan values. That's why he tells them in Galatians, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, what does that look like? What does faithfulness look like for Yeshua following Gentiles who are walking by the Spirit? So I think it's that's where we're, we're kind of going to bring this back to Judaism Um, For Paul's Gentiles, a no to circumcision is not the same as a no to Judaism. 
So for Paul's Gentiles, one component of faithfulness was for them to be clear they should not get circumcised and become Jews. That was not how faithfulness and walking by the Spirit, they did, that's not, those things didn't go together. Paul was not opposed to circumcision in general, but he was opposed to Gentiles getting circumcised for the purpose of Christ-like conversion. Paul's mind, it would undermine the gospel for in Christ Gentiles to get circumcised and become Jews. But a no to circumcision for Gentiles is not the same as a no to Judaism for Gentiles. Paul was calling them to leave paganism and embrace Judaism as Gentiles within Judaism. So William S. Campbell, he says, quote, It seems as if Paul has set himself the task of constructing for these Gentiles in Christ an identity that is related to Judaism and its symbolic universe, but has been constructed afresh for those from the nations. So, Paul, Dr. Campbell says that Paul's task included Gentiles having an identity, a Gentile identity, and relating to Judaism. So, Paul, I think, expected his mess, Messiah uh, allegiant or Messianic Gentiles to keep the Torah within Judaism while remaining distinct as Gentiles. So Torah faithful lives under the headship of Yeshua would define what faithfulness would look like for Paul's Gentiles. And I think this is evident from 2 Timothy 3.16 when Paul instructs Timothy to disciple his primarily Messianic Gentile community. And he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think there's a lot of implications for that verse, understanding what Paul was emphasizing and expecting as far as discipleship for Gentiles, both then and now. And I think that this says a lot about how all disciples of Yeshua should relate to the Tanakh, to the to the Old Testament. When Paul spoke those words, you know, the only scripture there was was the Old Testament, the Tanakh. And Paul was clearly expecting Timothy to use the Torah and the rest of the Hebrew scriptures for training in righteousness. In other words, Paul is advising Timothy to teach the Torah to the Gentile Yeshua followers under his care. And this, of course, raises the question of where Torah learning could realistically take place. So we're going to address that in the next section. But for now, the point is that Paul was clear that Gentiles to remain as Gentiles within the ecclesia, and they are to learn and follow the Torah as is appropriate for them as Gentiles. And so we see in modern times, as many disciples of Jesus are turning back to the Torah, the question of what appropriate Torah observance for Gentiles looks like is becoming increasingly asked. Christians around the world are beginning to see that something big is missing in how they've been trained to think and live as disciples of Jesus. And this is leading to a modern surge among Christians to learn the Torah from a Messianic Jewish perspective. So for me and my colleagues at FFOZ, as well as you know, here at Tikvat David in Atlanta, we take this question of appropriate Torah observance for Messianic Gentiles seriously. Again, we're not trying to make Gentiles look like Jews, but we are trying to emphasize what we feel Paul emphasized in that the Torah is very important. In the, there are lots of instructions in the Torah that define what obedience and faithfulness and righteousness looks like, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. So typically we begin this conversation with the acknowledgement that there are more questions than answers, uh, but I would say progress is being made and a basic trajectory can be identified when it comes to this issue regarding Gentile disciples of Yeshua incorporating Torah into their lives. So I would say to start when considering this question, I would advise, again, 
first and foremost, Gentiles to take full ownership over their identity without trying to look or act Jewish. But at the same time, uh, you know, I'm proud to encourage Messianic Gentiles and Christians to grow in Torah learning and living and keeping the commandments that apply to them as Gentiles and celebrating the sanctities of Israel alongside the Jewish people. So, you know, we encourage Gentiles to celebrate Shabbat holidays and other Torah commandments, not keeping them in the legal sense as Jews are obligated to do, but acknowledging the mitzvot, the commandments, and even celebrating them as adopted, spirit-filled sons and daughters of the kingdom who are part of Abraham's family, the one family of God. In her book, Sabbath, A Gift of Time, Bonnie Wilk says, quote, Can it be in these last days as the church anticipates the Lord's return that the keeping of Shabbat will be restored to the whole body of Messiah as a foretaste of the redeemed bride's glorious reunion with the bridegroom. So many Christians like Bonnie Wilkes are finding their relationship with God to be deeply enriched by incorporating the Jewish holidays into their lives as followers of Yeshua. Now some would accuse Bonnie and others of Judaizing, but my response would be, absolutely, they are Judaizing, but it's the right kind of Judaizing. It was Paul's kind of Judaizing. According to Paul's vision, this Judaizing activity within the nations draws the nations closer to the Jewish people and toward kingdom unity as together we keep Torah in the way that is appropriate for each. But what does this closeness look like? Where does it happen? In other words, if Paul assumes that both Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles are to keep Torah within Judaism as is appropriate for each, how does that manifest on a community level? Well, we'll look at that question uh, next time. As we continue this series, Judaism's Paul bringing the apostle home. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to this audio message from Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue. We would love to get to meet you in person sometime at the synagogue, so come join us for Shabbat or one of the holidays. Also, you can join us in building Messianic Judaism whether you live in the Atlanta area or far away by financially contributing to our synagogue. You can learn about the options for giving under the Donate tab at tikvatdavid.org. At Tikvat David, we would love to have you stand with us as we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. Shalom.